Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you're a passionate product person or happen to know a few, I'd love it if you could share this episode with them and subscribe or rate and review the podcast on the podcast app of your choice. On tonight's episode, we'll be speaking about delivery. No, not your Amazon parcels. We're talking about product delivery. We'll be talking about how to use data to inform your delivery decisions, how you should use story points for absolutely everything, and why it's more important to concentrate on the results you deliver than getting so hung up on the ins and outs of the framework that you've chosen. We'll also talk about how our guest has used some of these techniques not just to succeed at work, but also to succeed in his up-and-coming band. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is James Rooney, up-and-coming indie musician and band manager, F1 fan, champion of data-informed decisions and looking to apply story points to just about everything. Delivery manager at Discovery Inc. Also specifically calls out VLOOKUP as a LinkedIn skill, so I'm hoping he's going to excel at this interview. Oh. Hi James, how are you doing? Yeah, I was, I was good until that joke. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you, you do have to realise that's about my level these days. Uh, it's great, I'm only joking. <laughs> so. Anyone that keeps pressing up uh, for long enough on the remote control will have a good understanding of discovery. But in your own words, who are discovery and uh, what problem do they solve? Yeah, so discovery, I mean, a lot of people know Discovery Channel. And at the moment, we're kind of bringing everything onto our VOD offering, which is Discovery Plus. So Discovery Plus launched pretty much worldwide uh, on the 5th of Jan. So we're bringing all the kind of non-scripted dramas. So, you know, so your TLCs, your 90 Day Fiancés, love islands and um, <laughs> so that, we're, we're filling that gap we don't really fill the netflix gap we fill the gap of that kind of nice entertainment perspective and more to come we've got the olympics for the summer so that should be pretty cool so it's pretty good uh, that does sound good and you're a delivery manager for discovery yeah uh, so what what's your day job there uh, and what are you specifically delivering so i am the delivery manager for the expansion side of delivery so what i do is anything any program that's across a I kind of drive the delivery teams for that at the moment. So, for example, Discovery and DPlay were kind of the same thing. And we've just rebranded all the DPlay sites into Discovery Plus. So, there was a whole replatforming and you know, redesign of a load of technologies for the Discovery Plus launch. And I was driving that. And I'm on the future kind of expansion projects as well. And, and was that your kind of history from before? Were you working in some of this sort of uh, video on demand and, and other sort of related technologies before or, or was kind of Discovery your, your first entry point to that? No, I've worked in VOD before. So I worked for a company called Osmodern. So that was doing things for Sky and Formula One and, you know, uh, TV Academy doing the Emmy Awards. So I'm kind of used to working on big kind of VOD platforms. And, it's, you know, that's probably one of the reason why I'm at Discovery for being quite experienced at that. And I guess that's, obviously got some similarities with say building say SaaS platforms and stuff like that because i'm assuming that you're building SaaS platforms to deliver it but i'm assuming there's a lot of back-end stuff that has to kind of feed that as well so how, how, how much more complicated does that make your job for my job it's relatively simple you know it's back-end developers and front-end developers and devops and content creators you know they all work from story points they're all working with us in jira we're still having retros we still have planning so the processes don't change, just the people change and the terminology changes rather than the process. So it's it's not actually too bad, but there's a lot going on. As you can imagine, a company the size of Discovery is pretty big. 
So there's a lot of different personalities and a lot of things to, to manage. Yeah, and I was going to say, so you, you kind of touched on the, on the team thing there, and, and I'm assuming that you're working some, in some form of cross-functional team, as you kind of just touched on. Yeah. But do, do your responsibilities mainly encompass just one team and, and just working with them on a, a subset, or are you there to, to coordinate across multiple teams and, and kind of bring everything together? Yeah, it's multiple teams, multiple platforms, you know, so, you know, connected, Android, iOS, web, all the, all the big players in that perspective multiple developers across multiple teams. So that I kind of bring together that whole delivery aspect. I'm quite lucky to work with a really good product manager who does a lot of the more config, let's say, editorial side. So he takes a lot of that, the planning from that perspective, but it's more the technical delivery of those solutions is what I do. Okay. And I was going to ask, actually, obviously, as a, as a product guy myself, and obviously really interested in, in the sort of interplay between product and, and other parts of the team. So you, you you said you've got a good product manager and, and uh, uh, that's obviously brilliant and of course all product managers should be good but <laughs> um how does that work sort of day to day have you got quite good handoffs and, and separation of responsibilities do you all kind of just muck in on on whatever comes up or yeah is it is it a very positive relationship generally yeah it's it's really really positive you know we we've got really clear roles at discovery where the product owner takes quite a hands-on involvement in the ticket writing so often he'll write the tickets and then I'll kind of check them and make sure they meet our definitions of ready and stuff like that. And I guess from good, from my perspective, is that they're a little bit technical. So they kind of know, you know, it's the tweaks are very small and are my pedantic, you know, this needs a design. It can't just be linked to that ticket, that kind of thing. So it makes, considering we had to do something like 300, 400 tickets in the space of two or three months, when your ticket, <laughs> re- yeah, when your ticket review is quite quick, it really, really helps deliver that product. And I think he was a big part of that. So it was really good. And how about the developers? So one of the things and the trends that I've seen online in, in blog posts and, and other community posts and things like that is, well, so in some cases, you kind of have a very militant strand of, of, of developer who are sitting there saying, we don't need product managers. We don't need delivery people. We don't need scrum masters. We don't need any of that. Just Just let the developers develop and we'll develop you something great. Now, I personally don't agree with that, but do you have any of that kind of attitude with, uh, at your side or do you, again, have quite a good positive relationship with the, the technical staff as well? Yeah, to be honest, I've, I've never really seen that from any development team that I've worked in. You know, one of the first things I like to do is kind of get in and learn who people are and how they respond to different things. So I'd like to think that quite quickly they see the value that people like myself add and we're there to you know primarily solve problems for them and and like another thing that I kind of do is I'm not super regimented on every ticket has to be um, an essay. You know, if there's enough ticket, <laughs> if there's enough details and the developer says, yeah, I get this, just for the sake of being a bit more complete for an arbitrary, you know, nine more layers of text, I don't believe in that. So I think they kind of get the fact that, you know, they've got the responsibility to say that ticket's enough. And also they feel comfortable quite quickly in saying, actually, this is not enough. Can you go back and get X, Y, Z from, you know, ABC? So I've tended to have quite a good relationship. I don't really see that myself, though I could understand it in some scenarios. Yeah, I think it depends which communities and, and which, which <laughs> what, what kind of shell shock people are, are recovering from. But it's definitely commentary that I've seen. And obviously, as, a, as again, a dyed-in-the-wall product guy, I'm, I'm always sitting there chomping at the bit to, uh, to, to correct them. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe more from product side, I can see. You know, sometimes it's if they don't 100% get involved in too much detail of the grooming of the tickets, then there's just a guy that says, well, why does this have to be a bit darker blue? You know, I can kind of get why that's <laughs> some of those frustrations might come out of developers. 
But again, it's nothing that I've really seen. Or if I have seen it, it's never been such an issue that I would remember it in a conversation like this. Fair enough. It sounds sounds like a happy shop. <laughs> so do you use any particular agile methodologies? I mean, story points seem to imply that you're using some form of scrum. So are you using scrum? And, and if so, how by the book are you going with that? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of using an element of scrum ban. It's kind of a little bit more organized than Kanban. But my personal approach is that you know everything adapts to the company and the people within it. You know, stand-ups aren't there unless the devs get value out of them. Retrospectives aren't there, you know, just for the sake of it. So, you know, we do retrospectives, grooming, stand-ups, really keen on making the stand-ups as short as possible. No point telling us what you did yesterday for, for ages. Like, you know, it's a really clear, like one minute, maximum two minute for people. So we follow those kind of guidelines quite strict. But in terms of how we run our retrospectives, how we run our demos, we kind of bend and adapt to what the business needs and, and that kind of stuff. I would say from a, from a process perspective, we're strict on story points because in my opinion, and as you, as you kind of know, you know I, I absolutely love story points and I, you know, their value is massive. So everything that we can get story, pointed, story points and I'm really, really strict on that. Everything else ebbs and flows. Have you ever tried any other types of methodology or, or any, ty- any other type of approach other than sort of the classic sort of Scrum or Scrum Ban, maybe even Kanban, but obviously there are a bunch of other different approaches out there. Have you ever tried to dabble in any of those or... You're kind of sticking to the classics. No, I've ran some stuff in Waterfall before. I used to do <laughs> kind of like, uh, but that was more of a construction project for an art company. So it, it made, although there were agile advantages to doing that stuff, it made more sense with the stakeholders to stick to what they knew. And also, you know, pre-story point revelation, you know, I've tried t-shirt sizes, which don't work, and games, <laughs> which don't work. And so, you know, I've experimented with a few, but the one I'm, I haven't seen fail yet when implemented right is story points. And that's maybe a pretty strong statement, but you know, <laughs> I use story points to run social campaigns at an art company, story points to run my own music writing, you know, and, de- and deliver EPs and albums and story points to do software projects. And once everyone's on the same page, it doesn't really matter what a free is just that everyone who's involved in saying free understands in their own head, what a free is. Yeah, that's fair enough. One thing that you, you can also see in companies, uh, and I've certainly seen in companies, is that the Scrum Master role can be seen as kind of a luxury, and sometimes maybe it ends up being played by the product owner themselves, or you know someone else on the team, or it's a part-time thing, or it's just seen as a kind of an add-on. Now, obviously, that runs counter to the the sort of Scrum fundamentals, which seem to be very opinionated on that. But but have you have you seen that before? And 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 even if not, do you think that that's a valid approach, or 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 do you think that, that it should be a very distinct role? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I've I've been a sole scrum master for small teams. I've been the sole scrum master for like medium-sized teams. And I've been a scrum master stroke delivery manager hybrid and then delivery manager. So I guess it kind of depends on the relationships you've got with people. You know, it I think there's there's an easy way for scrum masters to almost be seen to be a bit like sitting on the laurels and just watching and that stakeholders can sometimes misunderstand that the value of watching isn't just sitting there playing on a Facebook game. You know, they're actually trying to understand the <laughs> behavioral traits. You know, when you could be in an office, trying to understand the behavioral traits and how people are and making sure you get the best out of them and spot when the mood starts to change and then you can react really quickly to that mood changing from being a soul scrum master. But I think as, as a quite an ambitious person myself, 
being quite a sole scrum master, you do end up having space to do other things that naturally gets you, if you want to be, a bit more into the delivery, a bit more into the financial forecasting, a little bit more into the CR writing, which is kind of where I ended up. Um, so I think there's, there's no one size fits all, but in my experience, there's advantages of both. Yeah, I think that the the problem that I've seen when you have the product person being the scrum master, for example, as well, is that they're kind of almost, they're not oppositional roles, but they're certainly, they have different, or they should have different priorities. So the the, the product owner shouldn't necessarily be doing everything, or their their whole priority shouldn't just be the, the, the working of the team. They obviously need the team to work, but they, their priority is making a really good product. And in many ways, that kind of, sometimes runs counter or can run counter to some of the things that maybe the scrum master would then push back on for example about getting some scope uh, reduced or making sure that everything fits into the into the sprint and stuff like that and 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 trying to get some kind of order to the to the chaos yeah i guess i my problems like that were really quite easy because because i'm so as you if you're listening now and you haven't picked up because i love story points our capacity <laughs> and our bucket was known it's really easy to share that information wide so once the team estimates something has been 30 points and you've only got space to do 20 points, the conversation, whether it's yourself wearing two different hats or you're in a meeting in front of the CEO and then a meeting with your development managers or whatever, you are still talking about the same 20 points, 30, and, and everyone understands that once everyone understands the process. So I guess that's one of the advantages I've had of being quite data-driven and you know recently data-informed. After I think I, I quite like your terminology of being data-informed rather than driven. So. And that's one of the big advantages that I've seen on that. So yes, you do wear multiple hats, but if you're all looking at the same hymn sheet, I've never really seen too much of that kind of cognitive dissonance when fighting between yourself. <laughs> just just wait. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a new Scrum Guide that's come out end of last year. Obviously been provoking a lot of discussion online. I don't know if you've read it yet, but if you if you have any thoughts on it or any any thoughts on some any improvements or whatever the opposite of an improvement is yeah i mean i haven't read it yet i've seen some kind of bullet pointed highlights on it and it's um it's one of the things i need to catch up on a little bit but at the same time i'm a big fan of applying the processes that the business needs to get the business outcome so i probably wouldn't go in back into there unless there was a problem that arose and i thought oh it, i wonder if the new way has a better solution to what's been provided so I don't think there's any major problems that I'm having that ne- like necessitated a new release of Scrum. You know, I'd done my Agile PM a couple of years ago. I've kind of done the Scrum Master stuff. Exams are great for sitting in a room for three days and learning what the roles <laughs> are. But every company I've been in has done it slightly differently. And at times, even the companies have changed the way they've done things as you're there. So I, I haven't read it yet. But, you know, anything that gets everyone on the same page tends to help. So, yeah, that's my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there is a danger, and it's certainly something that I've seen in certain forums and, and in certain discussions of, of being so fundamentalist that actually the way that you deliver stuff is the most important thing versus the fact that you're delivering stuff. Now, obviously, there needs to be a way to deliver it because you can't just throw you know, throw everything up in the air. But yeah, I think that any 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 time that you fall completely in love with with the the fundamental kind of strict rules about how to do things you you're definitely losing that flexibility which seems to be very unagile yeah and i think that's cuz if i remember right like scrum calls for a proper half day of planning and i know if i got my team together for half a day after 40 minutes cuz because we plan so quickly <laughs> 
as we're used to now, if we sat in a room for time box three or four hours, I don't think we'd gain any extra value from stuff. So there is a line, but equally, I haven't read it yet, so I can't comment on its on its full thing. But you know, anything that it obviously was released for a reason. It must solve something to some people, and if it does, great. And if some people disagree with it, that's probably great as well, because you know, I don't think it's a strict thing. It's, it's a little bit like telling artists that that's not the way you paint. You kind of paint however you need to paint. And the most important thing is that you are happy with the picture and that potentially other people are. Uh, absolutely. Another thing, though, that you do see online is that there's quite a backlash against Scrum in certain quarters as well. Yeah. And indeed, against in some ways, against Agile methodologies at all. Some people just seem to think that all of these different Agile methodologies are just not fit for purpose and that they don't enable you to deliver value. They don't help people develop software and, and that they're not fit for purpose at all. So, I mean, have you seen that? Have you come across that in your in your career as both sort of on the Scrum Master side or delivery manager side? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the two things that kind of jump out to me when you kind of say that is I've worked in like Scrum doesn't work if the same team that needs to support live issues has to support product development. Obviously, Scrum is meant to be fixed scope, delivering fixed things, and then it all works from there. And a lot of people try and do Scrum, but then expect that same team to fix a live issue if the website goes down or if the product all of a sudden breaks. And I think if you haven't got a dedicated team to deal with support, then Scrum just doesn't work. And you kind of end up in the, in that Scrum ban kind of perspective where you're kind of roughly planning, but and then Kanban almost feels too loose. I guess, I don't know if there's a name for this yet, but I kind of do like velocity, you know, like the cadence and tracking. So you know what, how many points you're going to get in a two-week period or a three-week period or what February is expected to do and then fill the bucket up and deliver. So I don't know if there's like bucketism. I don't know, let's make that now. It's just <laughs> you fill your monthly bucket up of work and and you go on and that's, and you do stuff like that. But that's been often the failings of Scrum that I've seen is when you say Scrum, all right, well, the scope is fixed. And then two days later, someone says, but we need to make this change now. Well, in, if you want to work at Scrum, in theory, you can't. If you, and the mental, like the gains that you get from being fixed scope were lost the second you introduce that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a bit interesting. I mean, obviously, you're, you're completely right that kind of unexpected things that occur within those sort of two-week cycles are, are obviously really tricky. Now, I know that some people, for example, have advocated if we know what our velocity is, then maybe go, yeah, only allocate 80% of that so that yeah, you've got some overhead for, for bugs. Now, you seem to be suggesting that you don't agree with that. Is that, is that correct? I, I don't think I disagree. I mean, it, that probably makes perfect sense in their environment. It's one of those things. So I can't comment on a rule that they made that worked really well <laughs> for their environment. You know, perhaps they're just talking about that. That suggests to me that there's a lot of tech debt in their pipeline and they can't just get to work. So maybe maybe the 20% is like a te- tech debt fixy part of the world, but just not called it. And I would argue that it's still 100%, just 20% is tech debt. And and that would be that would be the, the hint for me to go and look further if someone was telling me that, like if I was in a position. But I think there's, it's, there's loads of different ways of, of doing that kind of stuff. So I know that you're keen on a data-informed approach to agile delivery yeah, uh, and how story points could take over the world. And in fact, I first came across you in an agile roundabout talk called 
predicting the unknown, discussing how by fully utilizing the concept of story points, data can be used to make delivery decisions. Now, that's a catchy title. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Give me a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it goes above and beyond just having a good-looking burndown. Yeah. Uh, what What are some of your key takeouts and, and things that we should be doing to use data to inform our delivery decisions? So I think step one is a lot of companies and a lot of organizations don't realize the data they actually have. So a lot of people use Jira, but then after a month or whatever project they're on, kind of forget that that data just sits they're waiting to be used. There's a, there's a lot to be had from just quickly getting an export of that data, doing a quick pivot table and just having a play and seeing what your average story point is, what your average work through a month is, how big your average releases are. You know, and those things might not come out, but it can help estimate sizes for but certainly when it comes to new biz and you kind of wonder whether whether this new biz opportunity is the same as two of these releases or similar to that feature. So there's a lot there that can just be kind of deep dived and started off. And I think a lot of people just don't do it because either they haven't got the time or it's still the data analysis is still a relatively new skill set. So it you know, haven't got the space just to think about it and do it. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity to kind of differentiate yourself by understanding that data in delivery. And are you quite a good analyst yourself, or do you have to kind of offload that onto other people to to get you some some stats? Like, how do you approach the actual analysis of that data? Yeah, I'd like to think I was a good analyst. You know, I've been like I started off doing kind of like big data stuff for Ernst and Young, doing a little bit of analysis on there, and then kind of for the last eight or nine years, been a breadth of the new data techniques. You know, I wouldn't. I've used like the big tools like Power BI. But I wouldn't. I don't think I could ever hold a purely data analyst role in a large company doing large analysts. But from a delivery perspective, you know, I, I know what a standard deviation is. I know what averages are. As you mentioned at the start, you know, I'm, I love a V lookup every now and again. <laughs> Make sure you, you know, your, your data is right. So there are certain things there that that can be done. But would I say I'm a data expert in terms of actually diving into SQL and doing all that stuff? No, but I know the outputs and enough to get really good delivery information from now just as a side note i do believe re- that i read recently that uh, excel have overhauled vlookup and it's they've given it loads of extra new features and i think it might even be called xlookup now or something like that so really I recommend you go and have a look at that after this call yeah i mean to be honest the last two companies i've been at have been using google sheets google sheets has come a long way yep so I've, i only i'm in excel if forced to by a large marketing company you know apart from that <laughs> i would be in being google sheets which has to me, eighty percent of the of the need that I have, and then twenty percent on seems to be in their pipeline. They're working on stuff all the time, so I'm sure they'll get there. Oh yeah, Google Sheets obviously coming on leaps and bounds. But what's one of the best decisions that you've made based off of some data that you've analysed, and, and and how it helped you kind of move the needle on that? Well, that's a great question. So actually, probably in Discovery recently. So we've been launching Discovery Plus. And it was kind of since since I joined in October, and I'm very very vocal about kind of being data informed, data driven, and it was fairly new. I think it's fair to say it's fairly new to discovering as a delivery team, not the concept of using story points in a team, but then really digging into the, what story points mean and that data. So one of the first meetings I had with kind of the senior stakeholders was me showing this data graph that showed we were going to be a month and a half late if we didn't take actions. And there was a real like, whoa, moment. Wow, okay, we need to do something about that. And this was like two or three days after we'd started work because I'd had the ability to look at past data, 
see who was working on it, make some fair assumptions about what we knew, and then kind of mini model it. That was really like bang. And it was apparently it was the first time in Discovery's delivery team, you know, normally they'd say, we need an extra developer. Oh, you can't have it. Can you prove it? No. Whereas the argument was so solid, the only option was either be late or find us another developer from somewhere, which was as a delivery function was great to be able to say, well, product, you know, senior, senior product director, help us out. What do you want to do with this information? So that was probably really, really powerful. And I saw it at Discovery really making like a big difference to the delivery and also the way that the Discovery think about data in its delivery as well. So were you late or did you get an extra developer? We got an extra developer for the time until the burn down came under and then handed that developer back to their original team. And we delivered, <laughs> I think we delivered the day after. We were just behind on the, but the, for other reasons. But in terms, of, in terms of to launch, we still launched on time. But the internal deadlines we set, I think it was a day after because of a few little pipeline breaks. And it was one of those things where I think Git went down for a day and stuff like that. So, yeah. It happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so sounds like it sounds like a positive uh, experience though and hopefully demonstrated the value and it's not quite the same context but there's the the old jeff bezos quote about uh you know don't just come to me with opinions come to me with data yeah i mean he, he was using it in a kind of a different way but it's kind of similar yeah 100 percent. and i think it's you know a lot of the oh they'll never do this they won't believe that which to be fair wasn't really at discovery but has been at other places when, when someone puts a graph and a piece of paper and what I'm really keen on doing and maybe some way that I can kind of help shape other people's delivery is I try and build everything so that I have my assumptions in like colored blocks and then I share my screen or talk people through it. And if any senior stakeholder challenges the assumptions, just by changing like the number of weeks or the velocities, all the reports update straight away. So I can say, oh, okay, well, you actually think velocity is going to increase by 10%. One second, that still puts us 10 days, 10 days behind. Oh, where people just aren't used to having that really quick, like data-driven decisions. So it's not hard. It takes maybe an hour to set up. But when you're walking through it with these kind of senior people who, you know, you've got 40 minutes of them per week because they've got 100 other things to do. And they can say, oh, I think, actually, I think that's wrong. And you go, okay, like one second, bam, 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 bam. All right. So now we're still negative. Or oh, now we're plus 10. Is that enough? Is that still tight for you? Oh, actually, yeah, it is a little bit. And then you can have, real action-based conversations rather than just oh actually you know last time john did it in four days uh. <laughs> it eradicates that stuff so it's quite good <laughs> i'm sure you and sounds like you've had a few oh john can do it in four days why can't i <laughs> sounds like you've had a few of them yeah i think every single product person and every single delivery person has probably had a number of those conversations in their career so I know that one thing that we chatted about was your passion for music and obviously you've touched on that a bit yourself uh, earlier on and obviously, you know, in a, in a uh, I don't know if it's fair to say an up and coming band, uh, one that was looking to do some festivals before coronavirus hit. So I've done my time in the past in and around the music industry as well, although maybe slightly less successful. But I think one thing that was really interesting when we chatted was how you suggested that you've taken some of the approaches from your work into your band and presumably then learned some things by managing your band, which have then helped you with your work. Yeah. So what what are some examples of, of of something that's gone in either direction there? Yeah, so I think largely it's in the marketing and understanding audience insights. So a lot of things about how you can predict what people are going to do and their behavior. And you know, we kind of went super detailed on 
know, we know our fans are, I think, like 19 years old, <laughs> based in, let's say, Leeds. So what did 19-year-old Leeds? So we use it to really focus down on that kind of stuff from, from the kind of traditional, here is data, look at it. But also from, a, from an analysis perspective, we know we, we kind of pull all our information from all our social media platforms into like our own little like data hub. And then we can know when's the best time to post for our fans, when isn't, what kind of content does well, why did this content get 4% engagement more, when to boost, who to boost to, in, in that kind of way. And also we do it in, you know, we've got, we set ourselves, so, so myself is obviously in delivery. The other guy in the band is in data insight for a large marketing agency. So between the two of us, you know, convincing anyone to use data more just is an easy sell. So you know, we do our like album planning, our you know capacity planning for how 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 many songs can we write a month? We know that because we capacity plan, we measure it, we check. You know, even to like an element of like a quality demo assurance. Won't get that into too much of that now because it's a bit boring per se. <laughs> we kind of put our own metrics on stuff and then track them. So it's really interesting. Is some people would argue that's not what music's about, man. <laughs> which is which is totally fair. And you know, however people's creative process works for them. You know, for us, it's what we feel it's using what we have as an advantage in our work to make an advantage in our music. And some of the stuff we're seeing come through that with, you know, more targeted merch sales and stuff like that. So it, do, it does have an end product. It's just sometimes you don't feel like you're switching off from your day job at times. Well, you don't need to talk to someone who runs a product management podcast to, uh, <laughs> to talk about switching off from work. True. But I think it's interesting as well, though, because you, you, you touched on the kind of the marketing and, and, and sort of segmentation use case and stuff, which starts to sound a little bit more applicable to, to product management, because, of course, that's a big part of the product role. So have you ever had any ambitions or, or kind of had any interest in, in looking a bit going down that path or, or are you very kind of focused on the delivery uh, angle? Yeah, I've, I've kind of been there. So I used to run a startup where I was very like kind of what? Before CPO was a popular term, I was kind of the CPO and hair delivery function. So I have done that and I'm still quite, you know, I'm still quite actively involved in you know, what would be affectionately known as side hustles, you know, so I'm still part of that and figuring out different product things around there. Would I be a product manager? Maybe in the future, it would probably have to be, I'd probably have to take a step higher in delivery and then gain more product experience from a strategy wise rather than day to day. I think that's probably where my next steps, if they went into product specifically, would be. But it's really interesting, you know, especially when you speak to people about like feature usage. I think that's such an interesting world. I try and grab my hand on that, you know, knowing that 8% of users use this feature and when do they click on next episode and stuff like that. It's so cool. I mean, I, well, I find it so cool. So it's, it's certainly something I'd get into at some point, but, you know, it, maybe not in the next year, year and a half. Uh, it's interesting, actually. There's this whole fairly on-trend thing in the product world at the moment of kind of product operations as well, which touches a lot on usage and getting the information out that can then inform the product managers to yeah make good right. product decisions. So, so we're actually having a chat with with someone who works in product ops uh, later this week. So, right, keep them peeled. Cool. And on LinkedIn, it says you strive to be recognised as a thought leader. Yeah. So. Hopefully this interview will be part of that journey, but more more specifically, when's your first book coming out? So I'm actually I've actually planning four books at the moment to be released in the, <laughs> first, in the first two quarters of this year. So th there is little things, but they're more kind of I don't know if I call them books. They're more of I tend to in the last kind of few weeks, 
a lot of friends have been calling me about a variety of advice. So not just on delivery, but on like moving jobs and how do they know they're in the right career? You know, how do you even ask for a pay rise, for example? And I tend to be the point of knowledge for those people. So I'm, I'm exp- experimenting with maybe like practical guides to that. So, you know, it is something I'm actively going in. I think it's taken me up to now to kind of have my own opinion and also experience to say something. I think trying to say you're a thought leader in my early 20s would have been, you know, you could have said it, but might not have had much cred. So, you know, I feel like I'm at a point where I can start to do a little bit more of that. And certainly, you know, I've been pushing for story point in bugs, which you saw that talk on for a while. And that seems to get a kind of interesting reaction. And there's other process things behind the scenes that I'm kind of pushing for, you know, BA should be more involved in X, Y, and Z. So, and, and also, I feel like if you could get, call yourself a thought leader, it actually challenges me to think. <laughs> you know, sometimes you get a bit lost in delivery by you're in another stand-up, you're in another retrospective, you're in another meeting, you're doing some more story points, you're refreshing the same report for the same people, slightly different decision potentially, but it can get a little bit repetitive. So challenging yourself to think a little bit more leadership-wise, I guess, is, um, is one of my kind of like 2021 goals and see how, see how it goes. Oh, absolutely, and I'll be uh, watching uh, with interest. Thanks. But where can but where can people come and connect with you if they want to learn more about some of the things that you have been thinking about, or or you know, just connect and, and share stories with you in general? Yeah, I mean, probably the best place at the moment is LinkedIn. So I haven't got like a personal website and stuff like that. So if you add me on LinkedIn, I think it's forward slash James Anthony Rooney uh, is the like the little special UID thing. I'll accept most connection requests. Apart from those who <laughs> tell me Scrum Master courses, please, please, no thank you. I don't believe it's a good spend of £3,000. <laughs> Apart from that, you know, people reach out to me. And I, actually, off the back of kind of the talk you mentioned before, I had really a lot of interesting conversations with a lot of interesting people. So it is actually good. So please feel free to reach out and disagree with anything I said or agree. You know, I'd love to hear why and understand. Yeah, it's always good to get different uh, different opinions and, and and roll them all up into one. So I'll, yeah, exactly. I'll make sure we put that into the into the show notes so people can have at you. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. Thanks for spending the time, and obviously uh, we'll keep in touch and hopefully watch your thought leadership career uh, come on leaps and bounds in in twenty twenty one. But for now, yeah, thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks. Thanks for listening. As ever, it's been my pleasure to have your attention and I hope you found the episode interesting and inspiring. If you want to listen to more inspiring conversations with passionate product people, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice or onenightinproduct.com, that's night with a K, for interviews and insights with a wide range of guests covering all aspects of product management. That's it for me for now, but until next time, thank you and good night.